Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. On the PR Moment Podcast today, we've got Lord Tim Bell. Lord Bell started his career as a runner and ended up becoming one of the most high-profile PR people in the world. Synonymous with the Conservative parties of the 80s, Margaret Thatcher and the now-defunct Bell Pottinger, it's been quite a career. Worth mentioning that Lord Bell has had a couple of TIAs, which is actually a a small stroke, um, and that's why his voice is a little slurred. Lord Bell, before we start, can I just check that you've got your phone turned off? Yeah, got my phone turned (laughs) off. I left it at home, actually. Probably wise. Um... We'll come on to the demise of Bell Pottinger later in the interview, but uh, looking back, how do you feel about the uh, the firm you founded 25 years earlier going into administration? How do I feel about the firm? I feel very disappointed that it happened. I have a very clear view whose fault it was, and I have a very clear view what caused it. And it's contrary to most people's view. Most people's view is that it was brought down by the South African client, the Gutter Brothers. Um, it wasn't. It was brought down by a social media campaign caused by the Guptas, um, which had nothing to do with me, nothing to do with the agency. It had nothing to do with the, the, the coming down the business. And I left the business in August six, 2016. Sure. Which was months before it closed. Sure. As I say, we'll, we'll come back and come on to the detail of, of the timeline of those events a little bit later on. But uh, needless to say, the I suppose one of the things as a uh, an observer of public relations, particularly in the market, the, the London market that I observed was that, you know, frankly, a lot of people lost their jobs who had nothing to do with South Africa, nothing to do with the Guptas, and certainly nothing to do with the, the Oak Bay yeah, Capital account. Uh, and that was a, a sad thing to observe. Yes, it was sad. Yeah. Um, most of them had it in their hands to do what they wanted to, wanted to do about it. Most of them have got other jobs. Yep. Most of them are doing very well. Most of them are earning the same money they were earning. Most of them don't, should not be figures of sympathy and pity. The, pity. the pitiful figures are those who lost money. Sure. I lost three and a half, 300000 It's a very tragic story. It's the demise of a great company. What was the secret, do you think, of your, you know, making that move uh, as a as a junior person, uh, and then you know, mid career, and then senior? Was it was it a? No, did, was, did you think you'd get there? Is it a, a drive you always had? Was I, it ambition? I never aspired to be the head of a public relations business. I, I did aspire to be the head of an advertising business. Right. Um, I like like all advertising men sneer at PR men because they're not men of substance, um, <laughs> and I. Suffer from the same disease. Um, No, I set out to make a success of my career, but and and, a measure of success was getting to the top of the company. So I was at the top of the company when I I was doing advertising, and I was and I stepped from the top of a a PR of an advertising to the top top of a PR company. Sure. So what was it about advertising uh, as, a, as a young Tim Bell that you thought, yeah, I want to go and do that? What, what, what was it that, that attracted you to that profession? Um, I think because if it's entrepreneurial skill, right. because it, it's dependent on your own ability and what you put, put into it, what you get out of it, um, and because it's a creative industry and it's in, in the industry of persuading people to do things um, and persuading people to buy things, and persuading people to hold opinions right. that are what you want them to hold. Um, 
and it was the beginning of reputation management. From my point of view, the, the thing that I brought to the industry, both in the advertising sense and later on in public relations, was the idea of reputation management. They used to be called corporate advertising in the old days. Right. Um, you know, you, you sort of thing, the Dunlop commercial with Dunlop saying, imagine what the world would be like without Dunlop and the numbers disappeared from the cheque and tennis ball goes out the window. Um, and that, that, that whole concept. Because we believed that reputation lies behind the purchase of anything. Trust, Edelman calls it trust. Um, we call it reputation. Um, and it's basically it's what you do. Sure. What you, but you so you moved from from the advertising world into the PR world. They're the same was business. That, okay. So was that a, was that a how did that come about? Was that a did you, did you find yourself better at the reputation bit than the no, advertising no, bit? How did no, it all work? It came about because we bought good relations. Right. Um, and they needed someone we, to head we, that up. We were we were at low at low yeah. low house. Think I was name was on the door. That's think of Bell. Um, and Frank Lowe had invited me to join him when I left Sark just because I couldn't go anywhere else. And um, and then he uh, he he got fed up with me getting in his way in advertising. He felt I was getting in his way. And the campaign ran a front page which said, uh, whatever it was, 88, 19, whatever it was, 1986, the year of the bell. And it said <laughs> the, the reason it's it's... Lowe was so popular was because of me um, right. and he didn't like that and not surprising and so he wanted me, me not to be there he didn't want to fire me because I was making a genuine contribution to the company so he couldn't get rid of me um, and he said why don't you take the advertising non-advertising businesses and put them under the title Lowe Bell right. um, and I took a graphics design company um, a sports marketing business and various other things, and they were all called Low Bell. And I added to the top of that something called Low Bell Consultants, which was uh, my view of public relations that they should be run by consultants, not by account men. So it grew pretty quickly. It grew um, pretty quickly. And um, and and who? Are, and, but did you have any? Did you have a stake in that at the time? You did. Yeah, you did. I right. owned a third of it, right. okay. um, which I sold down when I when the company floated. Sure. Um, and Piers Pottinger has had twenty percent of it, right. and um, so so that point in your life, you were you were uh, leaving the specific maths aside. You you were a well off man. You yeah. know what I mean? You you know you had a your you you had some choices that you could make with your career because you. A man called Mark Smith was a finance director, right? And he was he was the chief um, other shareholder, right? Frank Lowe had twenty percent of the company. She kept an anti-embarrassment clause. <laughs> he didn't want to be embarrassed. And then he decided he was embarrassed because I was involved in, in all sorts of political chicanery yep. and David Mellor and things like that. Um, and he thought I was getting a bad reputation and this would rub off on him. And therefore, I wanted do, to, do you think he was right? He, no, no, <laughs> it was not. His name, his name just as bad as mine. Okay. And he wanted to... Um, he wanted to protect himself from that. He wanted to change the name. So he served me with 13 writs for passing off on the name uh, and saying I couldn't call it Lobel. Right. Um, now, I, I actually was just about to launch a package of, um, of um, incentives uh, called the Lobel Prize. 
and it was quite funny actually. And we were it was a low. So internally or externally, internally, right? Yeah, it was a Nobel Prize for for, um, for sports marketing, for advertising, all those good things. And and he, he that went by the wayside, and um, he sued me, and I had to give in because I had no choice. Uh, right. I wouldn't wouldn't have won the case. Um, and so, so that was you. All, did you have to start again at that point, career-wise? 19, so you were. Um, it was nineteen about nineteen eighty-nine. Okay. So, did you lose a lot of money then, or did you walk no, away before you lost no, money? I, I walked away before I lost money, okay. um, and I changed the name to Bell Bottinger. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, to honour honour my previous partner, sure. Pierce Bottinger, who'd been with me from the start, who floated the company in nineteen ninety-nine, um, and. We sold 25% of the equity of the market um, at a knockdown price of 128 pence um, and at a market cap. God, I can't remember. You can find out, look in the history and you'll find yep. the market cap. And then we started to operate on a worldwide basis. We decided we, we could operate in other countries and we opened agencies in other, other countries. Where did you Where did you open them? It was Middle East went well, didn't it? Yeah, uh, Middle East went well, and Hong Kong went well. Yeah, and one or two of the other places. America was was always a America never quite happened. Never did looked it? at America. No. Okay. Wasn't interested in America. Is that because the competition over there was was too tough? Competition I mean, too great, too many yeah. people, and not enough money to go around. And right. I wouldn't want to be a small fish in a big pond. Right. Um, and we never succeeded in opening an American agency. We had a flirtation with it. So, as an observer of your career, um, I've, I've always presumed the most the most fun part was was in the 1980s when you were working for Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government. But was that fun, or was that was that hard you work? You associate fun with power. Yes. Right. Um, no, it was good fun. Well, um, fun fun can mean all sorts of things. Yeah. But yeah, no, okay. it was good fun because it was. It was alive, it was current, it was affecting people's lives, and it was making a difference to people. And it was great fun working on it. Um, that was in Saatchi days, at yeah. the end of the Saatchi period, and ended in 87 when I left Saatchi. Sure. Um, and what was, you know, what's it like? Do, do you think government communications is the same now as it was then? Is it broadly, has it changed or no, is it broadly similar? Different. Okay. Um, in those days, we sold ideas and sold people, on, people uh, persuaded people to approach things with a particular attitude of mind. Privatisation, for example, we convinced people that private owners could run businesses better than public owners and, and things like that. We were, they were all against the rules. All, you weren't supposed to do that. You weren't supposed to run political run politically persuasive advertising. They were cheating and did them. Um, uh, the Labour Party had begun it by signing the advertising. You know, it makes sense. Yeah. And then they signed their election campaign with exactly the same sense. Vote Labour. You know, it makes sense. So they'd all all done it. So everybody was doing it, and we did it as well. Um, and but where did those sorts of ideas come from? Did the government come to you and say, we've got an idea? Or did the ad guys and the PR guys go to the government and say, guys, this is, this is going to work? Is it, what I'm, trying, I'm intrigued as to the, yeah. you know, the circular genesis. flow of... Yeah. Yeah. Well, the genesis really comes from the strategy group who talk strategically about what they should do. But is that strategy group in government or in an agency? Mainly in the agency. Really? One okay. or two people in government. Um, there were 
we had meetings with members of the government who told us ideas and we would pinch their ideas huh. or use their ideas. We had strategy meetings with lots of people. Um, the party chairman had a big influence. He would tell you what you could do and what you couldn't do. Right. And the head of research would tell you what you can do and what you couldn't do. I mean, the, the first campaign we ran for the Tories was called the Facts Campaign, and it was a full-page ad saying the tax, the facts. And then it just printed and it said things like, no Labour government has ever left office charging the same tax that it went into office. Um, no Labour... No Labour government's left more people unemployed than when it came into us. And there were just comparisons, which was a very good way of, of comparing the choice you had to make with the choice between Conservative and Labour. And you could do that, and then you sit in Liberal Democrat and, and yeah. slightly worse Liberal Democrat. And, uh, but how close was that relationship? I mean, was it a. Were you talking to politicians daily? Did they give you a brief and then you guys would disappear off for a couple of months and then come back? Were you were you advising Thatcher on what to say and what not to say about various issues? What, what, well, you know, you know how it works right. with a client. You talk to a client all the time. Right. Um, and they ring you up and ask you questions and you give them answers. Um, and when, you, when you're given a brief, you spend some time working on the brief and then you produce an answer which present the answers. Um, Okay, but, then, but at that time your role was as a as an ad guy. Really, you weren't you weren't working on the, the account, yeah you, you, exactly you weren't you weren't working on the yeah. reputation yet. Right. Um, and then I then I realised that the reputation of the Conservative Party seriously influenced way people had attitude towards voting. Okay, um, if people thought well of the Conservative Party, more people would vote than if they thought badly, um, and. And that meant you had to change history. And you had to get people to look at history differently. And hence the expression spin doctor. People would say, well, look at, the, look at the unemployment figures. They're terrible. But it was, it was at that time when you thought, I, I tell you what, I, I, I want to go and look at the, the reputation. So did, all, did your career it, it branch all, off at that point? It all, it all merged into one. Okay. There wasn't a day when I said, I'll do something different. Right. It, it just sort of happened. And then I realised that you could sell this to clients. And we talked to lots and lots of captains of industry that I met through Thatcher and through Thatcher's lunches and dinners um, and said to them, why don't we do something with your, with your reputation? And they'd say, well, what would you do with your reputation? And he'd say, well, a reputation is what you do, what you say about yourself and what's said about you. And advertising can influence what you say and public relations can influence what's said about you because it's part of third-party endorsement. So the different roles of advertising and public relations became clear in that situation. And and, and I wasn't around at that point. Before that, because there were PR firms before that happened, weren't there? So it wasn't... It wasn't that you were defining a new market segment. No, you were defining a new way of looking at public relations. Okay. Um, I mean, I've always done that. I've always looked at, at the industry I'm in and seeing if there's a better way of saying it, and that was an important part of it, was that I said to people, it's a different way of looking at it. People thought public relations, I mean, I, I've always understood the definition of public relations. Advertising is the use of paid-for media to inform and persuade. Public relations is the use of third-party endorsement to inform and persuade. Now, the definition of third-party endorsement is extraordinarily broad. It includes journalists, it includes commentators, it includes all sorts of people. Um, paid-for media doesn't is very simple. I'm intrigued that that time when you were advising Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party opened your 
I don't know, mm -hmm. opened your mind to the potential of mm -hmm. reputation management mm -hmm. and that obviously um, evolved rather than mm -hmm. being a, a big decision you made personally at the time to, to then have a big influence on your career and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the, the success of, of Bell Pottinger. Um, which leads us nicely on to the, the next question, I guess, which was Bell Pottinger was, was what, founded in 1999 or thereabouts? Um, 19, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it slightly depends which bit, yeah, exactly. Which, which bit you, you count as the start, I suppose. But uh, and anyway, it grew to become depending on what year you look. But in, in, in 2016, it was about a £27 million business. Um, what was behind that growth, do you think? Because, you know, lots of people start PR firms. Not very many get them to, to a business as big as that. Contacts, good connections, right. persuasion, persuading people to give us the business, um, performing, um, outperforming their, the previous occupant. Um, outperforming the current competition and creating great client satisfaction okay. because we had very satisfied clients and by getting the people who worked in the business to understand what they were doing and through understanding what they were doing they were able to talk about it and convince clients they were getting value for money. What I'm intrigued about is the, I suppose it goes a bit back to your definition argument, the type of work you were doing was or that dominated the business, because I'm sure it wasn't exclusively this, but it was corporate PR, right? Um, so it was... It was um, yeah, you can call it corporate yeah. PR, yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you had a reputation for taking on difficult briefs. Yeah. Um, and and difficult briefs, I guess, mean that you, you get... You, you can potentially be paid more for it. But how, how much of the business was at that, shall we say, tougher corporate PR end of the scale? I mean, because it presumably wasn't all like that, was it? Well, no, but it had, it had, it, it, it all started, it all approached that way. Right. And it also ran into um, specific ex executions of individual subjects. Like if you were dealing with the finance market, you had to deal with the financial media. So you dealt with financial reputation. If you were dealing with uh, the media market, you had to deal with the media, media, media. Right. And you deal with their, their reputation. You dealt with their reputation, so you you had reputation uh, in a broad area, corporate reputation, and you had reputation on specific subjects. So you, you what your argument would be? You bought a uh, a deeper, potent, potentially more thorough process to, to to corporate PR at that time. Uh, on corporate PR, we we looked. At, it, it was about the competition. Right. Who I mean, they used to have corporate monitors in those days, and they used to always show British Rail as the worst. The most frequently made. There was a correlation between frequency and bad feeling. Um, the more people heard of something, the more bad they thought it was. The less they'd heard of something, the more better they thought it was. And you could see a direct correlation. And so you invested in in, in that which affected it. Okay. Uh, and for that, you presume you needed good people, did you? So you, w would your argument be that you hired the the best people you could afford, basically? Yeah, and buy people who were qualified at what they did. And you had to um, pay them accordingly and pay them well because you were being paid by the client. It's a virtuous but, circle. But I'm intrigued by that because it's a... To do that, to corporate PR at that sort of a level requires vertical knowledge and, 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 and brain power, doesn't it? Mm. So, you're, you know, you... Mm. Where are you finding these people? Are they uh, In the advertising industry. OK, right. <laughs> because the planners are trained to think that way. Right. But but I'm intrigued that even then at that point you uh, I thought you might say well you had to 
to, to go for the financial markets, you hired a banker or, or something no, like that. But a, you hired an ad guy you had to and brought their process. You had to hire somebody who understood the process and understood the technology. Okay. So you could you could have you could hire financial PR men, but yeah, you had yeah. to be aware the, of their limitations. Yeah. Okay. The international expansion. I was just going to ask you a quick one on that because loads and loads of um, UK PR firms have tried that. In, in recent times, the last person to really succeed was was Chaddington, arguably with with, with Shamwick. Um, I, if I'm honest, I would say you 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 got quite a long way down that road, mm. but you didn't you didn't get all the way down that road. Um, uh, what were your lessons on that? You have to employ people who are uh, native to the country because right. they need to understand the language and the, and the custom, um, and you have to use media. The nature of the country, and you've got to understand the media. You have to be part of the local. Um, and you, you uh, didn't do that sufficiently well, sufficiently often. I mean, you, you did we, well in the Middle East and those sorts of things. But we well, did it. We did well in the Middle East, Middle East, and we built reputations for our people. Um, and we did the, did well in Singapore because we sent Piers Bottinger, and he uses he he understood the argument, and he reduced the skill set. And he produced a Chinese woman called Shu Wei who ran it and organised it. And it was very successful now because it's a failure. But it right. was very successful. Um, OK. The other thing you said which intrigued me was, was, you know, when I said, how did you do it? How did you scale it? You said contacts, connections. Um, well, now I had to start with a client. OK. That, so it was it's connections with the client yeah. and then presumably having connections that are then useful to the client. Yeah. Right. Which is tough to scale, right? Because you, yeah. you can build a very nice little business that way. But to make it into a near thirty million pound business is quite You've got difficult. To have somebody who's got an expensive knowledge about people. I mean, I know lots of people. Right. I know lots of people and lots of jobs. I've got a very good memory. I remember accurately what happened. And, um, and so I your answer doesn't change, even when you add that 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 scalability. It's still all about people and and yeah. the, the individuals' and I, and contacts. I've been, I've been round round the track a few times. I've done so many things, um, and you know it's about people's experience. And you, and you have to learn from your... You have to have an open mind. You're prepared to listen to listen to different ways of doing things. And then you succeed. OK. So, in 2002, you and Bell Pottinger CEO James Henderson completed a, a £19.6 million buyout from Chime, with Chime retaining a 25% stake in the business. But what was the rationale at the time behind taking Bell Pottinger out of Chime? Um... Well, it's difficult to be quite... I wanted to have my own business. Right. So I wanted to run the business. I didn't want to run it with somebody else. Um, secondly, I wanted, it to, I wanted it to be steeped in the traditions. So I took all the companies with the name Bell Pottinger in the front because they were all steeped in the Bell Pottinger tradition okay. of doing things. And I wanted to have uh, a number of accelerators that you could press to grow the business, so you had an accelerator in finance, an accelerator in, in public affairs. I like when you say accelerator, do you, you mean people? So, so you can press the button. You can call it, call the man in and say, "You're in charge of public affairs. Make make it work. Get more clients." Right. And you felt um, you felt that 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 you were reined in on that in in that being part of a wider group, which is which is because it was a common yeah. Twenty five percent embarrassment clause was copied from the low. 
days. Just talk me through what that means. What, what, is, what is an anti-embarrassment? means if it does better than you thought, you've right, still got 25% of it. Okay, right. If it does worse than you thought, you've only got 25% <laughs> of yeah, it. Okay. Um, it's a very simple piece of logic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I pinched it from the low buyout because that had done the same thing. Um, I learned from my experience. And um, so I put it to him. I couldn't make the money without him making contributions, so he contributed 25%. Um, he, Mark Smith, was the finance director of, of Chime, which owned... Who you'd known for years at that point. Worked with yeah, for yeah. 25 years. Yeah. It meant that James Henson got the largest stake. Because he put the most in, in terms of cash. Right. And I didn't get his largest stake, but I, I, I figured that if I had a su- sufficient stake, I could influence the outcome. Yeah. I'd got that completely wrong. Sure. But, but, but the, the rationale, I mean, also, you, t- you two at different stages of your career, presumably, weren't you, at that point? So you per- well, perhaps was, you didn't want a majority stake, I don't know. I but, didn't uh, want a majority stake because no. I, didn't think I, I couldn't afford it. Right. I didn't need it. Right. Um, OK. So moving on to the, the demise, I suppose, of Bell Pottinger. Um, uh, before we do that, I, I thought it might be useful just to talk us and, and, and listeners to a, a timeline of events that, that led to Bell Pottinger falling into administration. Um, because the timeline, I think, does bring some some clarity into um, into the chain of events. So, in early 2016, Oak Bay Capital or, uh, and the Guptas became a, a client of Bell Pottinger in South Africa. Um, in August 2016, you resigned as chairman of Bell Pottinger. Throughout 2016, the controversy surrounding surrounding, I should say, Oak Bay Capital's white monopoly campaign grew. During the second half of 2016 and in early 2017, some key clients of Bell Pottinger resigned, including Richemont and the 20-year client Investec. In the fourth quarter of 2016 and early 2017, the pressure grew, I think it's fair to say. There were widespread demonstrations in South Africa and indeed on social media. In April 2017, Bell Pottinger resigned the Oak Bay Capital account and in the summer of 2017, the media coverage of the scandal became front-page news and the social media chatter poisonous. And then in September 2017, the PRCA expelled Bell Pottinger. Bearing in mind the evidence, I think on the face of it, the PRCA had little choice but to expel Bell Pottinger, but it created a moment of theatre that made it virtually impossible, I suspect, for any clients to remain with the firm. The company in 2017. I know that. I said that. I said that. No, I just right. yeah, yeah, I yeah. made that clear. Yeah, yeah. Hey. I know that. I said, I said earlier on, you, you resigned in August 2016. Um, and then in 2000, September 2017, Bell Pottinger dramatically goes into administration and hundreds of people who, never, frankly, had never linked to do with the Oak Bay Capital account or, indeed, Bell Pottinger's work in South Africa lost their jobs. Now, what I find extraordinary about this is that previous to this, frankly, fairly sorry chain of events, the leadership of Bell Pottinger, you included, James Henderson included, Mark Smith included, had a, a, track, a stellar track record, frankly, of building and running profitable mm. PR firms. Mm. You'd overseen the growth of Bell Pottinger for 25 years. The, Bell, the board of Bell Pottinger had, had very many highly regarded people on it. You rightly say of, of all, most of them have found better or, or, or new jobs since it went into administration. And James Henderson, who, all right, you'd fallen out with, but he had been a very successful PR entrepreneur, building up the financial PR firm Pelham into a £6 million firm inside six years, which, uh, as you obviously know, he sold to Bell Pottinger. So I'm just intrigued how it all went so wrong so quickly. Have you got time? <laughs> I've got a fair bit of time. Well, you know, I have to do this without mentioning names, otherwise you'll get sued. Yeah. So very difficult. Um, 
fact is that everybody you've mentioned did not perform to their ability. Um, including you? Uh, no, including me. I, okay. I made the mistakes. Um, we all made mistakes. My mistakes were not terminal. My mistakes were accidental. Um, you know, the famous remark I made about all bankers being criminals, um, that's a mistake. Right. Um, and I apologise for it. Um, and I learned from that conversation. Um, we committed the sin of pride and the sin of arrogance and the sin of gluttony. Um, the fact is that people were paid too much money and they were overpaid and they were paid bonuses and they were paid bonuses as well and they were paid bonuses on the bonuses. We had a human resources director who was paid £250,000 a year. Okay. So this is totally separate to Oak Bay. You, you just think the, 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 Bay so, so the overheads of the business were just, just, just ballooned? Oak Bay whatsoever. Okay. The whole point of administration is that you've got less money, you're spending more money than you've earned. That's the whole point of administration. Yeah. That's the reason it's called administration, and they control the overheads, and the, and the overheads were out of control. What was the feeling in the boardroom amongst the staff at the time when it was all happening? Did people think what happened was going to happen? Or did people think it was all going to be all right? No, people were told it was all going to be all right. But they actually believed what they chose to believe. When you define administration as spending too much, the other side of administration is you're not making enough, isn't it? Um, and presumably it, it, just, it, it all added up until they lost all of the accounts because of the, the Oak Bay Capital Gupta South Africa scandal, um, well, if you which, want, which yeah. meant which, that was the catalyst, catalyst, I should say, to them losing the well, accounts. It, and it caused the loss of Richmond, Investec, and, um, and the potential loss of a bank that we didn't, which we didn't pitch for. But there were whole, I mean, the stories after that PRCA expulsion that were the clients were ringing up. On the hour of resigning the accounts, is that? I mean, you weren't I there, so. But it, but I you, don't know. you must have some stories from people who. I tell the truth. Were, no, but I tell the truth. There were rumours at the time that there was there was potentially a rescue package and things like that. Was that? I had organised. Were you behind any of that? I had organised and take over the company. Right. It was financed by a rich man, and I could buy ninety percent of the equity. I just had to knock over the one shareholder who was being difficult. Okay. Which was Providence, which wouldn't set at stake, um, but then it just cancelled it at stake. So it might as well have done it in the first place. Right. And why didn't that happen? Things just moved too quickly in, in the end. There was, there was nothing left to buy. I didn't think it was worth buying. OK. I have to fire everybody and yeah. close everything. And the, the brand was affected by that point, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. OK. Um, just on the, the Newsnight interview, the, the infamous mm -hmm. Newsnight in interview, do you regret going on there? No. Okay. I don't regret going on there. You must have thought when they were going on, when you went on there, they were going to have a it, go was, it was unlikely to be a, hello, Tim, give us your side I of the story. I thought they were going <laughs> to have a go at me because I, I, I killed Jeremy Paxson. Okay. I'll never be forgiven for that. Right. I, he was badly briefed and he, 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 he said his questions from his earphone. I could hear the question before he asked it. Um, and I... I I did something I've never done before since, or ever wanted to, was to do with the social media. I um, uh, trended on Twitter. <laughs> and my daughter rang me from Australia and said, why have you trended on Twitter? I said, I don't know what the hell's that. So she explained to me what right. it was. And one question I must ask is, who was on the phone? Or was that... Or was that Johan Rupert. Okay. Johan right. Rupert, who right. said, on the, thank you for being the only honourable stalk person in this story. 
Okay. That's why she didn't read it. Because she read it and wouldn't read it out loud because it was con. Do you think um, if the uh, Bell Pottinger had resigned the account, I don't know, six months earlier than they did, probably you apologised to somebody, made a, made a donation to an, an anti-racism camp, of course, probably resigned from the PRCA before they got chucked out, they'd have survived. Yes, of course. Okay. Then it was uh, uh, James Henderson's arrogance stopped them. He didn't apologise. He didn't apologise ever. He didn't even apologise to well, the client. I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but, but the, the board of Bell Pottinger must have believed somehow that the, the chain of events that I just outlined wasn't going to happen. So that, that somehow the, the scandal wouldn't cost them their business. Now, I don't quite know how... I suppose they didn't think the PRC was going to expel them, did they? I don't know. They, they refused to accept they were going to be expelled. They refused to accept... But what, what was behind that, do you think? I mean, I know you weren't there, so it's only an opinion. Yeah. You, you, so, you no, know, it's I'm, a fact, because I can tell you what the other director said to me. Um, uh, Henderson wanted to, wanted, to sit, wanted to sit out. He wanted to, but you only sit these things out if you think you're going to get the result you, you, th- you, you want. He thought he was going to. Moving on to your, your legacy, if that's the right phrase... Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw the what happened at the end of Bell Pottinger, I uh, I found it a really sad story. I mean, there's loads mm. of intrigue and and mm. revenge and plotting and, and all those sorts of mm. things. But actually, the core emotion I feel when I see it is a really big, high quality mm. British PR firm. That, all right, some people didn't like because they questioned its ethics, but you know that's 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 by the by. Um, that went bust, and it went bust quickly, and lots of good people lost their jobs, and therefore, arguably, Britain's well, yeah, Britain's biggest PR firm arguably went went bust real quick, and that's a shame. Um, so, th- and the other side of that is that you, who have, I think it was Lord Chadlington said it, um, we keep giving PR week plugs. I wish we'd stop it, but uh, uh, when you got your lifetime achievement award, I think he said that our, everyone in the room are, earns more money because of you. Hall of Fame. Uh, Hall of Fame, that was it. But So it, it, ha- it must have affected your legacy, isn't it? Do you think you, you must... Do, do you feel or do you think it hasn't? And what will your legacy be? Um, my legacy will be that I was straight-talking. OK. That I said things as they were. That I presented arguments to people, gave them both sides of the argument so they could, d- could debate it. Um, that what I did was very creative. We always communicated with things in very creative ways that I understood what public relations was and what advertising was. Right. I could articulate it and I could articulate it to other people. I could tell stories. I've been in the business a long time and I can tell stories that demonstrate all these points. And um, and I have a very good memory. Um, my legacy will be hundreds and hundreds of people who had very happy experiences in my companies. People in Bellpot and Jewelry were very, very happy. What about, um, the, what about the type of work, do you think? I mean, because it wasn't a media... You, you say, I'm, I'm intrigued by that connections thing, because you... Uh, yeah, who knows? But sometimes in the 1980s, PR took a wrong turn and became defined as media relations, didn't it? But you're, it, it strikes me that you, you, you're very much... That PR is a much wider remit than that. It's all about relationship. Yeah. It's all about relationship. But it's intriguing that at the time of you were... When you were making your most money, probably, or growing the business as rapidly as you were, was the time that the rest of PR was going down the media relations route. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that until The now. industry is always choosing the wrong path right. and doing the wrong thing. I mean, the people now choose international coverage. 
I've got 73 people in the Singapore office and 84 in the Kuala Lumpur office. You need with two people. You don't need anybody else. And you just do it with... And the network, the point of the network, you get the resource from elsewhere. That was the structure of Bell Pottinger. That's why I went wrong. The structure of Bell Pottinger was to have a central factory, the Bell Pottinger London office, and, and then satellite businesses in different places. And what, what happened in the factory then? The factory did anything, did everything. Right. It produced the work, produced so you just, the ideas. And then just had a front front person presenting it or, yeah. or doing it, whatever yeah. else. Okay. And it worked very well. So how many cigarettes are you having a day, Tim? Probably 60. Right. Um, it's an addiction I can't give up. I had colon cancer when I was 50. Right. And I, I lived through that. I've had the top bloke of my lung removed. I've had every warning you can have. I had a body, full body scan the other day, um, and I'm, I'm completely clear. There's not a sign of cancer. Brilliant. So it's very good. So you've had a stroke. You've had how many cancers? Oh, God. I've had a stroke. I had my gallbladder removed. I had the top lobe of my lung taken out. I had a triple heart bypass. Um, most of these are, are, are caused partly by smoking. Yeah, and what else I had? Done? But you're still loyal to the cigarette. You're not. You're not going to let them go yet. <laughs> well, I actually think it's wrong that people to stop from smoking. <laughs> I think it's an imposition on the freedom of individuals. Um, God wouldn't stop me smoking. Right. God doesn't. God gives me complete freedom. But but the point is, you've you're now clear. You went for a scan when? Three weeks ago. Wow, and you're clear. Yeah, since I was eleven. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. Just, it's unfortunate, and it's it's just a quirk of, of Tim Bell. fact, but I'm 77, and that's quite old. Uh, I suspect the damage is done. They always say that, don't they? I should um, tell readers that Tim has a cigarette in his hand is potentially about to light up. Yeah, but, I would um, if, I, if I didn't think they'd close it down and shoot me. Um, now, I don't... Look, smoking in me is just one of those things. I'm a natural-born smoker. I smoke. I, I like smoking. I enjoy smoking. I don't like giving it up. I did stop for about five years. Oh, did you? When I was 50. Tim, we're going to leave it there okay. because I'm going to go and let you have a cigarette. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.